Regenerative Medicine Day. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our special guest, Dr. Prashant Kumta. Dr. Kumta is the Edward R. Weldon Chair at the University of Pittsburgh Swanson School of Engineering and is a professor in the Departments of Bioengineering, Chemical and Petroleum Engineering, and Mechanical and Material Science. Dr. Kumta, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you very much, John. Good to be here. So you have a number of interests that are wide-ranging, but in terms of the focus of this podcast, I think that the discussion today probably should center around bioceramics and genetically engineered proteins that can be used for design of new biomaterials. With that in mind, can you just give us a brief overview of your activities and interests? Yes, John. I mean, I have been involved in working in the biomaterials area now since 1996 uh, when I got involved in the tissue engineering area and regenerative medicine. And our focus initially that drew us to this area was primarily due to the resurgence and uh, activity in the area of uh, biodegradable polymers. And the interest after that grew into looking at if we could look at ceramics that could also be viewed in the same way. And the interest in ceramics also was primarily motivated because of uh, it being the natural, for example, hydroxyapatite, basically calcium phosphate being the natural mineral, the mineralized uh, tissue in bone. And that was actually what drew my attention into working in this area. And since then, our focus in my group has concentrated primarily on looking at how we could engineer uh, nanostructured calcium phosphates and see how we could exploit the intrinsic attributes of uh, making a material in the nanoscale, primarily when you have particle sizes and grain sizes on the order of a few nanometers, and you improve the reactivity tremendously. And uh, along with that, when you have a high surface area material that exhibits a strong affinity towards biological molecules. So let's step back just a second and explain to our audience You have a focus on hard tissue and bone as contrasted with many of the previous guests we've had on this podcast who have been interested in soft tissue engineering. So is that a correct presumption? Correct. That's right. And I I have the impression that the state of the art for soft tissue engineering up to this point is more mature than hard tissue engineering or bone tissue engineering. Is that correct as well? Yeah, in a way that's true because the field has primarily started with biodegradable polymers, and there has been tremendous progress and advances in in that area with new polymers and new surface functionality that has been done and how you can make microparticles and bubbles and so on. So there has been, yes, a lot of progress in the soft tissue area because of the focus on, on polymeric systems. Is your work that you've just begun to describe to us, is it a biodegradable scaffold or it's a scaffold that turns into bone? Is, is that correct? As I was just mentioning, I mean, I, I kind of gave a preamble as to how we got involved in this area. And our, our focus uh, since taking the biodegradable polymers as our candidate materials and learning from them, the focus has been trying to how we can engineer uh, nanostructured calcium phosphate materials so that they can resorb in the same way as polymeric materials, and how can we tailor it and also functionalize it such that we can encapsulate uh, growth factors and plasmid DNA and see how we can make 
so-called smart scaffold. So you could have two things. I mean, have the scaffold structure resembling the defect site or the bone site that we are talking about. And at the same time, augmenting it with the surface attributes such that it can also serve as a delivery agent. So we have a scaffold that takes the template structure of the host tissue, so to speak, and then you also have a delivery system combined with that. And as a result, our goal is to be able to regenerate bone and have the scaffold also resolve and completely go away in the normal regenerative time period of 8 to 12 weeks. So are these uh, scaffold materials, are they castable or machinable, or how would one apply this in a clinical application? Oh, a number of ways. I mean, we've, we first started out looking at nanoparticles. So we made you know, very fine 10 to 20 nanometers of hydroxyapatite. And these nanoparticles have the distinct ability of binding and condensing genetic information like, you know, the DNA. And by condensing and binding DNA, we were able to deliver these particles to bone cells, and we were able to show that we can regenerate bone. So that, that's how we started first. Now, these, these nanoparticles are uptaken by the cells, and then they dissolve and release the DNA and then it gets into the nucleus and it helps to transfect and uh, generate the, uh, the protein that can then do the job. So that's how we started first. But now we can also take these nanoparticles and house them inside a scaffold structure. And that scaffold structure can be made of a calcium phosphate gel. We have currently work going on where we are trying to mimic hydrogels, polymeric hydrogels, by making so-called polymeric ceramic hydrogels. So essentially you have a calcium oxygen, phosphorus oxygen chain that resembles a biodegradable polymer. And this would essentially have the same architecture like a polymeric system. So you would have your chain and you would have the pores in between the chain filled with liquid. And so we could house these nanoparticles inside a calcium phosphate gel which would serve as a scaffold. We could also embed them into a cement or a putty uh, essentially, what we do is we take two solid precursors, you know, and we mix them with the nanoparticle dispersion uh, in water, and we end up getting a paste that can be essentially molded or shaped into whatever site we want. So it could be our bony defect site, an osseous defect site, or it can, or it can just be a prefabricated shape. So you could inject it directly into the site, or you can preform it into whatever shape you want, and then you can embed it or implant it, so to speak. So this particular construct that we make has these nanoparticles uniformly distributed into the 3D structure. So when you implant it into a defect site over a period of time, the calcium phosphate framework will resolve, and it's a porous structure too. So the cells get in, the host resorbs, and the cells uptake these nanoparticles, and it's able to regenerate bone. So there are two ways of looking at it. We can either have just the plain nanoparticles embedded into the ceramic putty, or you could have these nanoparticles having growth factors bound to them. And we have very promising results that show that in both cases, we're able to form bone. When we have a bone morphogenetic protein as a growth factor that is bound to these nanoparticles and then they are dispersed into the, this calcium phosphate putty. After we have implanted it into a rabbit model 
Uh, normally, this is an ulna model that we have uh, shown uh, through our collaborators in the School of Dental Medicine. And we have been able to show that when we have bone morphogenetic protein, the entire cement material or the putty material is completely resolved in eight weeks and it is replaced with new endogenous bone. So in terms of, of applications, I've heard you and your colleagues speak of craniofacial regeneration. I've heard you talk about open fractures and so forth. So is it your perception that as this technology matures, it could be applicable to most bone defects? Yes. Our initial results, you know, when we started working in this area three years or three or four years ago, you know, our initial goal was to just see if we can make such a formulation that we can tailor its characteristics such that it would set the initial setting time and the final setting time would be in the range of few minutes, three to ten minutes max, so that the clinician who is using this in the operating room feels very comfortable in putting this into the patients. So after we were successful in demonstrating that we could indeed create a formulation that would exhibit these characteristics, the second thing that we were focusing on is most commercial. Now, when you talk about these parties or, or cements or uh, formable paste, there are several such materials in the market. It's all of these companies that make commercial cement materials for bone defects. The problem with most of these commercial materials is that the pH of these precursors are either highly acidic or basic which means the cells and the biological molecules are very unstable. So we spend quite a bit of time in trying to engineer the formulation such that this whole setting reaction occurs within the body physiological conditions, which means 37 degrees centigrade and a pH of 7.4. So we were able to now generate our formulation, uh, which has all of these attributes. Namely, it can set at 37 degrees centigrade, it's during the whole reaction, right from the mixing to the initial onset of the setting reaction and then the final hardening when the actual powder precursor transforms into a hard material in its final shape. That whole time period goes anywhere between 5 minutes to 10 minutes. And this entire process occurs under physiological conditions. So it's at 37 degrees centigrade and 7.4. So that has shown quite a bit of interest among the clinicians as well as people that we have spoken with because it makes it very conducive and applicable for incorporating cells and all kinds of biological molecules ranging from growth factors to proteins to peptides and gene delivery or plasmid DNA as well as regular DNA. So we've been able to do all this and we can engineer the shape as well. I mean, in addition to sort of injecting it into the defect site and letting the clinician work with it to form the paste and make it into the shape cavity, for example, in the calvaria. So you mentioned craniofacial applications. We have our current study that is ongoing where our focus is trying to take this formulation, put it into a syringe, and then essentially inject it into the defect site, which would be your calvarium and then trying to shape it so that it takes the shape of the cranium and the patient's skull. And then you can just suture it, the tissue back on the surface of the material. And then after a period of eight weeks, you would have new bone replacing this original scaffold material.
I think that's a very attractive alternative. As I understand it, the, the current practice is where there's large craniofacial defects that there's a piece of metal put in, which also invites other complications like infections and so forth. Yes. Normally, you either have a plate put in or you can, you know, they normally have a PMMA kind of a plastic that sits there to fill that osseous defect. You're absolutely right because any foreign body that is placed inside the body will always elicit some kind of a foreign body reaction and complications arise because of the inflammation that comes in and the host tissue response and the immune response that comes in that sort of eats into the surrounding tissue and then creates all kinds of hypersensitivity issues with the patient. So our focus has been to avoid all that. So that's why we are trying to work on or completely even eliminating the growth factors. I mean, so our goal is just to use the calcium phosphate material itself and use that to engineer this cement-forming reaction so that you can take this paste and then shape it into the tissue area. So in addition to injecting it and using the surgeon, using his or her hand to distribute this paste into the surrounding uh, defect site, we can also use 3D printing. So using customized CT scans of the patient, we can then translate that CT scan into the printer, so use the software that can integrate and read the CT scan into a printable design that can then be used to make layer by layer printing the same calcium phosphate powder and the liquid medium is sort of injected simultaneously and you can make printed patterns. So we have shown that you can make all kinds of complex architecture, so right from the mandible to the craniofacial complex. So you can take any defect site and then translate it into the printer modem and be able to print the shape with the same precursors. So in other words, in lay terms, you could create a scaffold that's three-dimensional complex geometry that could replace some craniofacial structure that has been damaged or destroyed. Yes, absolutely. So the goal is that we can make the 3D complex architecture. So you can go from creating the surface structure to the pore size distribution, the shape distribution, or a connectivity between the pores. So you can get the 3D architecture involving both bulk and the surface and truly mimic the complex tissue architecture. And we can use that and mimic that with the calcium phosphate particles. So it's kind of fascinating, at least that's what we think. We are still far away from proving this. Currently, trials are ongoing. And the whole idea is that if we can engineer this system such that you can make the complex shape, complex architecture, by using nothing else but just these calcium phosphate particles and using a liquid which is plain water, you know, physiological water under normal temperature and pH, and they contain these nanoparticles, which induce the reactivity. And then when this whole reaction occurs, meaning the liquid, the aqueous liquid containing these nanoparticles, and they come in contact with the calcium phosphate formulation, there is a reaction that takes place. And this reaction ends up transforming the initial precursor to a form that is absolutely identical to the natural bone. So natural bone, if you look at natural bone and if you were to take an X-ray image of the natural bone, it's essentially a carbonated form of calcium phosphate because you have bicarbonates in the body fluid 
CO2 exchange that reacts with the calcium phosphate to form a carbonated form of appetite. And we find that that's exactly what happens here. So during this liquid-solid reaction that takes place, it transforms the initial reacting precursor into a carbonated form of appetite that is nanostructured, meaning that the, the grain sizes of the, the individual atoms that come together to form a single grain, and then you have different grains coming together at every boundary, and that's how you get a solid ceramic material. So in a matter of eight weeks, you go from this uh, scaffold material to truly bone. Truly bone, exactly. And you find that it transforms it into a nanostructured form, and because of the nanostructured form, the reactivity is so good that it resorbs, and during the resorption, it induces bone formation. So bone is formed on the nanostructured calcium phosphate scaffold, which then resolves. Dr. Kunta, this sounds very fascinating, and of course many of our listeners will be prompted to ask, when might this be available clinically? I know you're moving forward in that regard, but is this a year, two years, that order of magnitude? It's interesting you're asking that. I mean, actually, we're on a very fast track in terms of getting this into patients. So in the last three years, we did a pilot study uh, where we utilized these nanoparticles and the calcium phosphate putty paste. You know, we were afraid to use this directly into a load-bearing system. That's our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to be able to see how we can engineer the strength of these reactions to see if they can actually handle the load of, let's say, putting it into a femur, into a long bone. So our initial goal was to look at conservatively look at our semi-load-bearing systems. And we were able to show that in eight weeks, yes, indeed, the initial non-union is completely fused, and we get, because we created a 15-millimeter critical size defect, and we were able to completely fill it. So that was our initial study that kind of garnered a lot of interest from uh, various folks. I mean, we even got our poster that went in one of the technology conferences which was held in Philadelphia in 2009. It was judged as one of the three promising technologies to make it from bench to bedside. So this was the result that got everybody's attention. We were lucky to get a grant in place from the Department of Defense that wanted us to take these initial trials and make it into the clinical arena in two years. So we're right now looking at having this in patients in next year. So we are currently doing our preclinical experiments the goal being to go for a 510K application with the FDA. By doing this, we are hoping that we'll be able to make it to actual human patients. So we have a manufacturing partner that we have identified who will be doing these formulations in good manufacturing practice conditions. And we are very hopeful that these materials will actually make it into the patients by next year. So around 2012, we are hopeful that we will have some very positive results in actual human patients. Congratulations to you and your colleagues. It's a very promising technology and certainly, as you indicated, a very rapid pace to bring it to a clinical practice. Yes, and, and the reason why we believe that this can be possible is because, as I just mentioned, there are lots of commercial products that are already in place. And what we need to demonstrate is that our materials are very similar, if not better. Hence, we feel that even though it's a fast pace, we may be able to demonstrate that because it's not like a class 3 device where we need to show all the toxicity. It's essentially calcium phosphate, which is a known material that has been already FDA approved. Very good. So, 
So, Dr. Conta, this is very interesting, and I know you have many collaborators. Is there anybody in particular that we should mention during this discussion? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, all of this work has been possible because of my team people. That includes my postdoc, Dr. Abhijit Roy, who has spent a lot of time and effort in developing this formulation, and it would not be possible without my collaboration with uh, Dr. Charles Fair and my excellent interaction with the School of Dental Medicine, including the Center for Craniofacial Regeneration that is headed by Dr. Sphere. Dr. Kumta, we thank you for sharing this development today and joining us by telephone to have this discussion. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to address. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again in two weeks, I thank Dr. Kumta for his contributions and best wishes to our listeners. Mm-hmm.